You're listening to an Afternoon Reads podcast featuring a selection of writers from the 2012 World's Literature Festival. Good afternoon, and thank you all for coming indoors on uh, what looks to be the last sunny day we're going to have this week the weather forecast is to be the week. Uh, my name is Mitchell Albert. I'm the program director at Writer Center Norwich, and I'd like to welcome you all to the second of our Afternoon Reads series, which is part of the World 2012 Literature Conference. Afternoon Reads gives the writers attending Worlds 2012 a chance to hear each other's work and to share it with the public here at UEA. In the mornings, the writers attend what we call the Salon, where presentations on the conference theme are read out in the form of provocations which are then discussed. The Afternoon Read series is set within this context. The theme of yesterday's readings here was Language and Experiment, and Friday's is Strange Lands. Today's theme is Truth, and given the overall theme of Worlds 2012 is fiction, memoir, and truth, one might say that today's theme, therefore, is situated, uh, today's readings, rather, are situated at the heart of the entire week, both uh, thematically and temporally. And indeed, the work of our readers today is redolent not only with representations of real events, such as war, race relations, sex trafficking, but also with secrets, shaded truths, subtexts, concealed emotions, and the yearning for clarity and honesty. I'll introduce the writers each in their turn, but briefly they are in the center, Eleanor Catton of New Zealand, at the end, Goreti Kilmuhento of Uganda, right next to me, Francis Levison of the UK, next to Goreti we have Alex Miller of Australia, and finally Chico Nigwe of Nigeria. First up is Eleanor Catton, who was born in Canada and raised in New Zealand. She wrote her debut novel, The Rehearsal, when she was 22 years old. It was first published in New Zealand by Victoria University Press and was met with great acclaim internationally, making the long list for the 2010 Orange Prize and the short list for the Guardian First Book Award. It received the Betty Trask Award and the Amazon.ca First Novel Award. It has now been translated into 12 languages. Eleanor holds an MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop at the University of Iowa, where she also taught creative writing as an adjunct professor. She currently lives in Wellington, New Zealand, and is writer in residence at the University of Auckland. Her novel, The Rehearsal, charts the aftermath of a sex scandal at a girls' high school and has been described as a Russian doll of a novel and a glimpse into the future of the novel itself. Her forthcoming second novel, which she describes as an astrological murder mystery, takes place during the New Zealand gold rushes of the 1860s. Please welcome Eleanor Cowden. is what she says. I simply can't admit students without prior musical training. My teaching methods, Mrs. Henderson, are rather more specific than I think you understand. A jazzy pulse begins, just drums and double bass. She swirls her spoon and taps it once. The clarinet is tadpole to the sax. Can you see that? The clarinet is a black and silver sperm, and if you love this sperm very much, it will one day grow into a saxophone. She leans forward across the desk. Mrs. Henderson, at present, your daughter is simply too young. Let me put it this way. A film of soured breast milk clutches at your daughter like a shroud. Mrs. Henderson is looking down, so the saxophone teacher says rather sharply, do you hear me? 
with your mouth like a thin scarlet thread in your deflated bosom and your stale mustard blouse. Mrs. Henderson nods imperceptibly. She stops fingering the sleeves of her blouse. I require of all my students, the saxophone teacher continues, that they are downy and pubescent, pimpled with sullen mistrust and boiling away with private fury and ardour and uncertainty and gloom. I require that they wait in the corridor for ten minutes at least before each lesson, tenderly nursing their injustices, picking miserably at their own unworthiness, as one might finger a scab or caress a scar. If I am to teach your daughter, you darling, hopeless and inadequate mother, she must be moody and bewildered and awkward and dissatisfied and wrong. When she realises that her body is a secret, a dark and yawning secret, of which she becomes more and more ashamed, come back to me. You must understand me on this point. I cannot teach children. Kiss, kiss, kiss goes the snare drum over the silence. But she wants to learn the saxophone, says Mrs. Henderson at last, sounding ashamed and sulky at the same time. She doesn't want to learn the clarinet. I suggest you try the music department at her school, the saxophone teacher says. Mrs. Henderson sits there for a moment and scowls. Then she crosses her other leg and remembers that she was going to ask a question. Do you remember the name and face of every pupil you have ever taught? The saxophone teacher seems pleased to be asked. I remember one face, she says. Not one individual student, but the impression left by them all, inverted like a photographic negative and stamped into my memory like an acid hole. I'd recommend Henry Sutil for clarinet, she adds, reaching for a card. He's very good. He plays for the symphony orchestra. All right, says Mrs. Henderson sullenly, and she takes the card. That was at four. At five, there is another knock. The saxophone teacher opens the door. Mrs. Winter, she says, you've come about your daughter. Come in and we'll discuss carving her into half-hour slices to feed me week by week. She holds the door wide so Mrs. Winter can scuttle in. It's the same woman as before, just with a different costume, Winter, not Henderson. Some other things are different too, because the woman is a professional and she has thought about the role for a long time. Mrs. Winter smiles with only half her mouth, for example. Mrs. Winter keeps nodding a few seconds too long. Mrs. Winter inhales quietly through her teeth when she is thinking. They both pretend not to notice that it's the same woman as before. To start off with, says the saxophone teacher as she hands her a mug of black leaf tea. I don't allow parents to sit in on private lessons. I know it's a bit of an old-fashioned policy. The reason is partly that the students are never at their best in that sort of environment. They become flushed and hot and they laugh too easily, and their posture changes, folding up tight like the lips of a blossom. Partly also, I think, the reason I like to keep things very private is that these little half-hour slices are my chance to watch, and I don't want to share. I'm not that sort of mother anyway, says Mrs. Winter. She's looking around her. The studio is on the attic level, and the view is all sparrows and slate. The brick wall behind the piano is chalky, the bricks peeling white as if diseased. Let me tell you about the saxophone, says the saxophone teacher. There is an alto saxophone on a stand next to the piano. She holds it up like a torch. The saxophone is a wind instrument, which means it is fueled by your breath. I think it's interesting that the word for breath in Latin is where we get our word spirit. People once had the idea that your breath and your soul were the same thing, that to be alive means merely to be filled with breath. When you breathe into, into this instrument, darling, you're not just giving it life, you're giving it your life. 
Mrs. Winter nods vigorously. She keeps nodding a few seconds too long. I ask my students, the saxophone teacher says, is your life a gift worth giving? Your normal vanilla-flavoured life, your two-minute noodles after school, your television until 10, your candles on the dresser, and face wash on the sink. She smiles and shakes her head. Of course it isn't. And the reason for that is that they simply haven't suffered enough to be worth listening to. She smiles kindly at Mrs. Winter, sitting there with her yellow knees together and clutching her tea in both hands. I'm looking forward to teaching your daughter, she says. She seemed so wonderfully impressionable. That's what we think, says Mrs. Winter quickly. The saxophone teacher observes her for a moment and then says, let's go back to that moment just before you have to refill your lungs, when the saxophone's full of your breath and you've got none left in your own body, the moment when the sax is more alive than you are. You and I, Mrs. Winter, know what it feels like to hold life in our hands. I don't mean ordinary responsibility, like babysitting or watching the stove or waiting for the lights when you cross the road. I mean somebody's life like a china vase in your hand. She holds her saxophone aloft, her palm underneath the bell. And if you wanted to, you could just let go. Here's old falters after the first six bars. I haven't practiced, she says at once. I have got an excuse, though. Do you want to hear it? The saxophone teacher looks at her and sips her black leaf tea. Excuses are almost her favorite part. Isol takes a moment to smooth her kilt and prepare. She draws a breath. I was watching TV last night, she says, and Dad comes in with his face all serious and his fingers sort of picking at his tie like it's strangling him. And eventually he just takes it off and lays it to one side. She unhooks her saxophone from her neck strap and places it upon a chair, miming loosening the strap as if, it had, as, as if it has been very tight, and says, sit down, even though I'm already sitting down, and then rubs his hands together really hard. She rubs her hands together really hard. He says, your mother thinks that I shouldn't tell you this just yet, but your sister has been abused by one of the teachers at school. She darts a look at the saxophone teacher now quickly and then looks away. And then he says, sexually, just to clarify, in case I thought the teacher had yelled at her at a traffic light or something. The overhead lights have dimmed, and she is lit only by a pale flicking bloom, a frosty sparkle like the on-off glow of a TV screen. The saxophone teacher is thrust into shadow, so half her face is iron gray, and the other half is pale and glinting. So he talk, starts talking in this weird, tight little voice about this Mr. Saladin or whatever and how he teaches senior jazz band and orchestra and senior jazz ensemble all on Wednesday morning, one after the other. I won't have him till sixth form, and that's even if I want to take jazz band because it clashes with netball, so I have to make a choice. Dad's looking at me with this scared expression, like I'm going to do something insane or really emotional and he won't know how to deal with it. So I go, how do you know? And he goes... She crouches down beside the chair, speaking earnestly and spreading her hands wide. Honey, from what I understand of it, he started off real slow, just resting his hand really lightly on her shoulder sometimes, like that. Isol reaches out and touches her fingertips to the upper end of the saxophone, which is lying on its side upon the chair. As her fingers touch the instrument, a steady pulse begins like a heartbeat. The teacher is sitting very still. And then sometimes when no one was watching, he would lean close and breathe into her hair. She puts her cheek against the instrument and breathes down its length. Like that, really tentative and shy because he doesn't know if she wants it yet and he doesn't want to get done. 
But she's friendly because she kind of likes him and she thinks she has a crush on him and soon his hand is going down, down. Her hand snakes down the saxophone and trails around the edge of the bell, down. And she, she sort of starts to respond and she smiles at him and lessens sometimes and it makes his heart race. And when they're alone in the music cupboard or after school or when they go places in his car, which they do sometimes, when they're alone, he calls her my gypsy girl. He says it over and over, my gypsy girl, he says. And she wishes she had something to say back, something she could whisper into his hair, something really special, something nobody's ever said before. The backing music ceases. Isolde looks at her teacher and says, she can't think of anything. The lights come up again as normal. Isolde scowls and flops down onto an armchair. But anyway, she says angrily, she's run out of time. It's too late because her friends have started to notice the way she is sometimes, the way she puts her chin down into the side like she's flirting, and that's how it all starts to come undone, crashing down on itself like a castle of cards. I see why you haven't had time to practice, says the saxophone teacher. <coughs> Even this morning, his old says, I went to play some scales or whatever before school, and when I started playing, she was all like, can't you at least be sensitive, and ran out of the room with this fake sob noise, which I knew was fake, because if she was really crying, she wouldn't have run off. She would have wanted me to see. Isolde digs her heel, the heel of her kilt pin into her knee. They're treating her like a fucking artifact. Is that so unusual? The sax teacher asks. Isolde shoots her a vicious look. It's sick, she says. It's sick, like when kids dress up their pets like real people with clothes and wigs and stuff, and then make them walk on their back legs and take photos. It's just like that, but it's worse because you can see how much she's enjoying it. I'm sure your sister is not enjoying it, the saxophone teacher says. Dad said it would probably be years and years before Mr. Saladin gets properly convicted and goes to jail, his old said. All the papers will say child abuse, but there won't be a child anymore. She'll be an adult by then, just like him. It'll be like someone destroyed the scene of the crime on purpose and built something clean and shiny in its place. Isolde, the saxophone teacher says, firmly this time. I'm sure that they are scared only because they know that the sin is still there. They know that it's snuck up inside her and stuck fast, wedging itself into a place nobody knows about and will never find. They know that his sin was just an action, a foolish, deadly fumble in the bright, dusty lunchtime light, but hers, her sin is a condition, a sickness lodged somewhere deep inside for now and for always. My dad doesn't believe in sin, his old says. We're atheists. It pays to be open-minded, says the saxophone teacher. I'll tell you why they're so scared, Isolde says. They're scared because now she knows everything they know. They're scared because now they've got no secrets left. The saxophone teacher gets up suddenly and goes to the window. There is a long pause before Isolde speaks again. Dad just goes, I don't know how it happened, honey. What's important is that now we know about it, it won't happen anymore. Thanks. She grew up in Hoimar, Western Uganda, and is the author of three novels, the second of which, Secrets No More, won the Uganda National Literary Award for Best Novel of the Year in 1999. She has also published a number of children's books and short stories. Goretti is a founding member of FEMRA, the Uganda Women's Writers Association and Publishing House, and worked as its first programs coordinator for 10 years until 2007. In 2004, she was a tutor in the English department at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban, South Africa. 
from which she holds an MA in creative writing. There she taught and assessed second year students in the creative writing program. In 1997, Goretti became the first Ugandan woman to receive an international writing program fellowship at the University of Iowa. She has since participated at readings and conferences in Europe, Africa, North America, Latin America, and Southeast Asia. In 2009, she founded and now directs the African Writers' Trust, which brings together both African writers within the diaspora and writers on the continent itself to foster exchanges and mutual learning. She divides her time between London and Uganda. Please welcome Goretta Kumuhenda. Good afternoon. I'll try again. I bring you very warm greetings from Uganda. Uganda is a very beautiful country nestled in East Africa. And uh, most of Uganda is made up of water. We have Lake Victoria, which somebody decided to name Lake Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> and it is the second largest freshwater lake in the world. We have River Nile, which is the longest river in the world. We have Lake Albert, which also somebody decided to name <laughs> And many other lakes. So the, the greeting in Uganda is a lot day. And a lot day means it is a question that is the water calm? Is the lake calm? So if it is calm, which means everything is okay. So I'll ask you a lot day. And if your life is okay, you can reply a lot day. I'm going to read to you from my, my third novel, which is called Waiting. Darkness was beginning to fall when father returned. He ate in a hurry, saying he was going to fetch the bath attendant. We hardly spoke as we ate. Everyone was tense an uneasy feeling was beginning to settle in my stomach. Father had not been gone long before he was back, saying that Uncle Campbell had told him some soldiers had been sighted approaching the shops at the center. Father had been unable to proceed to the bath attendant's house. He said he was going to Nyinabarongo, but Kaka stopped him. That woman behaves like a child. She wouldn't even know how to cut the cord. Anyway, what can you expect of a woman who let her in-laws chase her away from her own home? I was surprised by Kaka's unkindness towards our neighbor. I'd never heard her speak of her like that. Then I'll call the landwoman, Kaka said. That childless one, they say she has never fallen pregnant before. What can she know about childbirth? Besides, she wouldn't know about our ways. I'll attend to her myself. But you have no eyes. You cannot even remove your own jiggers. I know what to do. I've delivered babies before. You take the children to the sleeping place before those men come. I'll remain here with mother. Maybe Alinda should stay with you, father said, turning to me. She can assist you. There were furrows of worry on his face. For the first time since the war began, I detected signs of fear in him. I'll need a new person, Kaka said. Where do you expect me to buy a new person? All the shops are closed. Father was visibly angry. The vein on his forehead stood out, pulsating. Well, I need a new person. Don't worry, I'll use mine. Kaka was insistent. I hope she'll be all right. Nowadays, women go to the hospital to deliver. They're not used to our own ways. 
father was silent. He turned to me. Stay close to your mother. Come and call me if there is anything wrong. My, my dad better stay. He was confused, torn by his different responsibilities. He paced in the yard, mumbling to himself. I did not know what to do or say at this point that would make sense. You can't stay, Kaka said calmly. She seemed to be the only one unafraid of what lay ahead. You know they always kill the man first, she added. It's too dangerous for you to be here with us. But what about you? Father was becoming very agitated. Who, me? But I'm an old woman, and your wife is heavy with child. They won't bother us. Alinda will hide under the bed. No, no, not under the bed, said Father. That's the first place they will look. Well, where do you expect her to hide? Said Kaka crossly. Mother called me from her room. I went to see what she wanted. I'm in pain, she told me simply. Are you going to the sleeping place? I'm staying with you. The rest are going. Can I bring you your banana fingers? No, I cannot eat now. Kaka has already given me the enema. She asked me to, to massage her back with the cream. The area between her waist and shoulders was damp, so I used the tip of the kanga to wipe away the sweat. Shafts of pain seemed to be running through her whole body. I applied a little cream and used my thumb to massage her. She started moving her head, grinding her teeth. Am I hurting you? She grunted and mumbled something I could not hear. Stop, she said finally, it's not helping. Father came in and stood looking at her for some time. We are going now, he said. Come and fetch me if you need me. I nodded. I was very worried about mother. I felt hot tears burn my eyes, but I blinked them away. I did not want her to see me crying. Kaka came in and stood, looked at, uh, and, and looked at mother and said she wanted to check the position of the baby's head. She asked me to go out of the room. She had smeared sheer butter on her fingers. I went and stood at the back door, listening to the noises of the night. When Kaka called me back to the room, I found mother lying on her back, her legs spread apart. Kaka was rubbing her stomach, which seemed to loom above the rest of her body, like a mountain. Go and wash my basin properly with a lot of soap and warm water, Kaka instructed me. When I brought it back a little while later, she told me to place it at the mat where mother was lying. I stood there not knowing whether I'd be needed now or later. When Kaka did not say anything, I went and sat on the bed, waiting. My eyes lids felt heavy and tired, and I slept. Kaka was calling my name. I opened one eye. The yellow light from the lantern blinded me. Mother was whimpering softly. Her head was raised, and she seemed to be looking down over her stomach. It's almost here. Kaka was saying, I can see the hair now, and it's a big head. She called my name again, and I responded. Where are the baby things your father brought from the city? In the pit, I replied. Go and get them, quick, she said urgently. I moved to the door and opened it. Quickly, I stepped outside. I walked, swift, I walked swiftly, noiselessly the soft grass beneath my feet, muffling the sound of my footsteps. The gentle light from the breaking dawn made the banana trees 
look like silly hoods or soldiers turning to attention. Who is it? Father's voice called out quietly, but loudly enough for me to jump. It's me, I replied. How is your mother? She asked anxiously. Has the baby arrived? Is she all right? He was whispering. The baby's almost out, and I've come to fetch the baby clothes from the pit. I whispered back. I pointed out the plastic bag which was sitting on top, where mother told me to put it. Father picked it up and handed it to me. The soft light and the silence was broken only by the croaking sound of the frogs. We had begun walking towards the house when we heard the gunshots. Their harsh barks sounded very close. Father pulled me to the ground and I crouched beside him. More shots rang out from all sides. Father beckoned me to crawl closer to where the banana trees were at their thickest and would shield us from the sight of, of, of dawn. Heavy boots ran towards the house. God have mercy, Father whispered. My heart was beating so loudly I thought the soldiers would hear it. I raised my head a little and saw six men in army uniforms walking towards the house. They were speaking loudly and one of them raised his gun and shot into the air. I started to scream, but father clamped his hand over my mouth and choked the scream back. I have to go and save your mother and Kaka, father whispered. He crawled a few paces forward. I crawled behind him, the plastic bag tight under my hand. Daylight had now broken, and we could see the soldiers clearly. They were shouting, but I could not, not make out their words. It sounded as if they were speaking in another language. Kaka came out of the house. She seemed unafraid. She asked the soldiers loudly what they wanted. They all started talking at once, pointing their guns at her. More soldiers came. Kaka told them urgently that she was in the process of delivering a baby and she was needed back in the house. The soldiers sounded agitated and dangerous, and I wished I could warn Kaka to speak to them nicely. I felt somebody moving behind me and gasped. Uncle Kembo put his hand on my shoulder. It's only me, he said. And somehow I felt a little comforted that we were not quite alone. One soldier seemed to be roughing up Kaka. He shouted at her, and Uncle Kembo translated. They want women, food, and money, he said. And they want to know where everybody else is hiding. But Kaka did not understand their language. Uncle Kembo said they were speaking in Kiswahili, a language mainly spoken by Amin's soldiers. Kaka laughed loudly, scornfully. Do you have no respect, she called out. No shame, pushing around an old woman who is trying to deliver a baby. One soldier kicked her hard in the stomach and Kaka screamed. Father stood up again, ready to move forward. Uncle Kembo spoke. Don't be stupid. How can a man armed with a panga fight 20 men with guns? But we have to do something, Father hissed desperately. Lying on the ground, Kaka continued talking. You want to kill an old man like me? Go ahead. What have I to fear? The soldier kicked her again. The three or four who had entered the house came out and started talking to those outside. Two had climbed into the mango tree 
and its branches creaked under their weight. They began throwing the fruit down to their friends, who snatched up and ate the fruit like monkeys. For a moment, the tension seemed to ease. But the soldiers began to argue as they ate the mangoes and threw the seeds into the yard. Uncle Campbell translated. Some said they must search and find the owners of the home. Others are arguing that the house is empty with nothing of value to steal, so they should move on. Their loud voices sounded ugly as they echoed across the empty yard. Kaka slowly managed to sit up. The soldier who had assaulted her muttered something, and the others laughed as if they were drunk. Kaka spoke again. Go, you beasts. I have to attend to a woman giving birth to a baby who will be more useful than you. How can you beat a woman old enough to be your great-grandmother? Do you think you can scare me? Me? Who used to beat my husband until he urinated in his trousers? She laughed. If you are real men, go and fight with your enemy instead of coming here to terrorize a poor, harmless old woman like me. What's wrong with her? Father was beside himself. Only one of them needs to understand her, and she's dead. The soldier whom she had addressed pointed his gun at her and fired. Then he fired again, aiming at her stomach. The other soldiers had walked away. One who seemed to be like their leader shouted at him to follow them. The soldier kicked Kaka once more, and she screamed loudly. Then he turned around and began to walk away. The sound of their footsteps beat loudly on the dry earth. I was still clutching the plastic bag that contained the baby's things when I ran inside the house to find mother. She was gasping and calling out softly for help. I saw a cushion of blood and heard the baby crying. Mother told me to find a small bundle under her pillow, which contained a razor blade and some cotton wool and gauze. Cut, she commanded when I told her I'd found it. Cut what? The umbilical cord. My hands trembled and I could not hold the razor blade steady. I could not see the cord. I feared to look at the jellied blood next to the baby. I thought I might vomit and tried hard to contain myself. Then I saw something like a fleshy string coiling out of the bloody mess and winding its way to the baby's stomach. I severed the cord. Nervously, too quickly, and only half of it was cut. It was thicker than I had imagined. The baby was crying loudly. It had lots of hair, but it was covered in caked blood. Mother was commanding me to cut. I put the razor on the cord and cut again. And slash, it fell off. She asked me to bring the clean basin I had washed the previous night and put the afterbath in it. I touched it gingerly, my hands still trembling. I tried to get hold of the afterbath, but it slipped through my fingers and fell back towards the baby. It danced around in the pool of blood still sipping from mother's womb, swimming like an egg yolk. Give me the baby, mother told me. Is it a girl? I was shivering so badly that I could hardly speak. I tried to hold the baby, but it was covered in slippery liquid. Don't throw the afterbath in the latrine. Mother was talking to me. 
Her voice seemed distant and weak. I could see her mouth opening and closing, but I could not hear what she was saying. Dig a hole and bury it there, very deep, so the dogs don't find it and eat it. The words seemed to be falling from her lips. Thank you. Frances Lumsden was born in Edinburgh in 1982 and grew up in Sheffield. She read English at Oxford University and won Eric Gregory Award from the Society of Authors, which was given to British poets under the age of 30. Her first collection, Public Dream, was published by Piccadilly in 2007 and was shortlisted for the Theatre Prize, the Forward Prize for Best First Collection, and the Gerward Alderberg First Collection Prize. Her poems have been widely published and uh, in newspapers, magazines, and various anthologies. And she currently works as a freelance creative writing teacher for arts and educational organizations. Please welcome Francis Levison. Um, it's very nice to be here. Um, I'm going to read four poems for you this afternoon, um, all of which come from the book that I'm working on at the moment, um, and which I hope will allow me to touch um, in a few different ways on this idea of truth and truths and what we mean by that that we've been talking about this week. Um, truth is such a big word, <laughs> such an um, absolute idea, um, but I'm with Adrienne Rich when she says that truth is an increasing complexity. Um, and the poems I'm going to read um, are all trying to navigate that complexity in, in their own way. The title of the book that I'm working on at the moment is uh, Disinformation. And disinformation, as I'm sure you all know, um, refers to the dissemination of deliberately false information, um, especially when that's being supplied by a government or one of its agents to a foreign power or to the media. I think poetry is often credited with being more truthful than other forms of public discourse. Um, and I believe that, but at the same time, Poetry is a bid for authority, as any utterance is. Um, and it can also be an agent and a vessel of disinformation. So one has to try and navigate um, both, of those, both of those problems. This first poem is, is from a group of poems in the book whose titles come from acronyms. So I'm quite amazed by the sheer number of the proliferation of the acronym um, in English these days. And I wanted to write something that explored and counterpointed the, um, the utilitarianism of those constructions and the way that they kind of shortcut through language. And this poem is called GPS. Like a wet dream, this snow globe was a gift to myself. It rides shotgun in the passenger seat or stuck to the dashboard, swirling and swirling across the carpet of potholes to my house. Its matryoshka mantelpiece wears an inscrutable face. There's no telling how many dolls deep she goes, beyond her one red peanut shell, her pupa's lacquered shine, superglued to a painted knob, brilliantly magnified by an atmosphere of cerebrospinal fluid under the smooth glass domes museum, a solid case of ozone. When I do a U-turn, it triggers another storm. Her compass 
boggles. Lie down there in that drift, little girl. You're feeling strangely warm, and something big is about to make sense if we just keep going in the opposite direction. So we're um, surrounded by these streams of data and uh, information and disinformation all the time, and uh, the voice of the GPS that we heed or ignore or possibly argue with if it's telling you to go left and you know you have to go right um, is uh, something that we have to deal with all of the time. The, the title poem of the book, which I'll read for you now, um, depicts, it, it's quite a different poem from that one, it's, it's a lot more intimate and kind of domestic than that one. Um, it depicts a woman in her kitchen preparing for a children's party um, who glimpses for a moment the artificial fabric of the information environment in which she lives and her complicity in its power. Disinformation. I am making jelly for my nephew's fourth birthday party. Any flavour, as long as it's red. Bouncy cubes snipped and stirred into hot water in a cloudy Pyrex dish, rediscovering the secret of Isinglass, or is it horse gelatin, while the radio announcer intimates that certain unpopular facts about the operations hitherto repressed, like signs removed from crossroads and bridges in occupied lands, can now be revealed if we just stay tuned. Party bags designed to please infants pile on the counter, two bright colours badly drawn. Blue napkins, party poppers. My red hands put cylinders of sausage on cocktail sticks. These pass for traditions. And all the time I listen to them talk fluently about foreknowledge, proactivity, stations. It is winter treacherous to walk. The children are on their way by now, adults too, bundled against the promise of snow. And the entertainer, with tricks and jokes, hidden under a blanket in the boot of his Volvo, limp balloons into which he will blow his lungs full of ideal animals, practices misdirection. I chop yellow cheese. Out the kitchen window the whirligig turns, metal spokes, merciless as diagrams, cutting the air, no clothing softens. Tiny gems, icing the nodes where their lines intersect. Every extant leaf is fixed with glitter where the glue's dried clear. This poem, um, this next poem began with um, a commission from the National Gallery to write a poem in response to the myth of Diana and Actian for an exhibition of Titian paintings that will be happening this summer. Um, rather than pursuing the motif of the deer and hounds, which I, I felt it would be a huge challenge to try and do something new with that, um, I found myself imagining instead, in line with all of the, the ideas that I had been thinking about for my own work up to that point, um, I found myself imagining when I looked at, in particular, the painting of Death of Acting, um, 
I imagine that Diana had destroyed Actaeon not so much by transforming him into another thing, but by refusing to acknowledge him as being distinct from the woods where they met. Um, and that's something that the coloration of the painting and the texture of the painting seem to support. Um, Actaeon is kind of disappearing into the woods, um, and Diana remains very, <coughs> very distinct and, and very powerful, so that she appears somehow to be simplifying the story so that it doesn't include him anymore. Um, and I, I hope, uh, retrospectively, I could see maybe that this poem was allowing me to think about the role of refusal and denial and silence in, in constructing certain narratives and official versions of the truth. So this is called Woodland Burial, and I guess there's a play in that title on the idea of, of burying a story. Throne water touched him, and where it touched, it said his body was the same brownness leaves turn when autumn is upon us, a swept up heap trembling where it stood. That when the huntress concentrated, trees, tree shadows, underbrush, and bushes made a wood, and it was ever thus. That nothing can be other than as known by a god, no truth a lie, no death long sleep. Poised with springy longbow drawn and back to the sun, the one who had revealed her form from landscape or eyes independent as a streak of white paint on a mirror held him on her gaze and held the torn canopy of clouds on the water, how she might have kept a spoonful of honey in the warm fold of her tongue before it dissipated. Not the greatest possible harm which needs to be known and named as such to achieve its end. Not what he fled, but the unofficial crime. The moment she let her attention crop, those deep recursive avenues of beach to a backdrop he broke against, confused. So nothing in the landscape escaped his touch, and nothing left of him was in the picture she composed. <clears throat> I'm sorry, there's been so much talking this week, I don't normally... Okay, I have um, one more poem. I don't, that, that poem rhymes, I don't know if you can hear it, because um, I was interested with this idea of transformation, um, and, I, and I was... It's a, it's a poem in eight rhyme stanzas and they rhyme but some of the rhymes are cross stanza rhymes and that the rhyme scheme is very scrambled and I wanted the sense of the poem being in the process of turning into something else something less orderly um, and uh, this, this poem is a rhyming poem too I'm very interested in formal structures and, and formal constraints um, this poem was inspired by the shrunken heads at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, I don't know if any of you have, have seen them um, so these, these heads are palm-sized um, actual human heads um, that were made, I'm not sure what the, the word for that is, man, not manufactured or whatever, but they were um, sort of treated and, and turned into these objects in Ecuador and Peru um, by, uh, it's about four different tribes that they're drawn from that have been brought there in the, the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And they are still there, um, despite many debates about whether they should still be there. Um, although the, the original kind of murder of um, the person whose head was to be shrunk was usually committed for reasons of vengeance, 
um, the act of shrinking the head and turning it into this artifact that could be kept um, was not to do with vengeance, it was actually to do with inducting the soul of the dead into the tribe of the warrior who had slain them. Um, so it was about shifting allegiances. Um, and that I was reading all these debates about repatriating artifacts like this and how we handle human remains that have um, stayed in the country that they didn't originate in, um, despite kind of the collapse of many of the colonial structures that enabled them to be there in the first place. Um, and the problems with repatriating them as in where do you send them back to, and who are you giving them back to, and so on. Um, and, and I found myself wondering whether after so many years in the museum, if our identities are kind of constructed, would it not have changed its sense of itself, um, the head, I suppose, if it still had a sense of self, um, would that not have been changed by the, as it were, the kind of modelled tribe of the museum, I suppose. Um, at the very least, the, the idea of any projection of the head's consciousness would be very complicated and politically complicated and emotionally complicated by having spent 100 years in this environment as opposed to perhaps 20 years um, where, it, where it came from. So what is a deliberately problematic <coughs> act of cultural appropriation? I have written a poem in the voice of one of these shrunken heads. Um, and it imagines that the head is indeed being sent home, whether it wants to go or not. So this is a shrunken head. In the cargo hold, cruising at 30,000 feet above blue islands, galactically cold, I float between Oxford and the site where I was found, then traded on. I cannot see for bubble wrap. At this stage in my repatriation, I belong to no one, a blip a birdie ounce in the undercarriage. Only the curator knows I've gone and who is left. She redesigns the tour. Lizard bones replace me. Indigenous crafts distract with dyed feathers from an absence. So in me, no memory withstood the leather-thonged, moth-kissed costume of an Eskimo, its upright hood ringed with reindeer fur like frost regarding me for years without a face across the Victorian cabinets, or a cruel long spear frozen in space, dressed like a wrist with jade and jet. Or Bobo, as I named him, his heavy puss pursed like a clown, like a freshly sprung mushroom, observing silence. I miss being part of the known quantifiable index the massive mouths of children smearing the glass case, sometimes shocked and crying, more often delighted to learn of my fate, sneaking pictures for school reports. Their flashes filled me up with light, like water would a calabash, or cauterizing beams from night security did the displays. For hours after, I'd see patterns that couldn't be real, shadow play, huge birds fighting each other up the loaded walls. I'd imagine hands to rub my eyelids with, lift them, and feel the cross stitches holding me in, my vengeful breath trapped beneath their seals, wanting for the first time in lifetimes to exhale, to spit red berries or the prattle of a curse. Then that would fail in the force of my several injuries. 
and I'd seem to drop towards a far ocean, armless, footless, a seed head blown without will or hope or wishing upon through the middle of a crown to land on my shelf under rows of wooden masks and blown birds' eggs, smelling the open jar of myself, salt sweet as tamarisk, mild as figs. Alex Miller is next. Alex emigrated from the UK at the age of 16, alone, to Australia, where he has resided ever since. He is best known for his fiction and has been acclaimed as the most deeply philosophical of contemporary Australian novelists. His work has long been celebrated in Australia, and he has twice won that country's most prestigious literary prize, the Miles Franklin Literary Award, first in 1993 for his novel, The Ancestor Game, and again in 2003 for another novel, Journey to the Stone Country. The Ancestor Game is a complex, wide-ranging historical work that moves between China, Germany, and Australia throughout the 1840s to the 1970s, while Journey to the Stone Country is regarded as one of the most insightful examinations of relations between Aboriginal and white Australians on both personal and political levels. Alex's work has won further accolades in Australia, including the 2008 Manning Clark House National Cultural Award for his novel Landscape of Farewell. His last novel, Love Song, won the 2010 Book of the Year Award Fiction Prize and the Book of the Year Prize presented by Melbourne's The Age newspaper, as well as the Christina Stead Prize for Fiction and the People's Choice Award at the 2011 New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. Alex was also elected a fellow of the Australian uh, Academy of the Humanities in 2011. Please welcome Alex Miller. Thank you. It was a fine day. The sun was shining, just for her. The sea running a heavy swell after the previous night's storm. The sound of the sea in the room with her now. He had raced down the track to the main road on his bicycle earlier without telling her where he was going or when he would be back. She stood at this window then, where she is standing now, watching him go. It is already midday. The postman has been and there is a letter sticking out of the box by the gate. A white triangle catching the sun as if a white bird has alighted there. The letter will be from her mother. She will walk down and fetch it later. She has come out of her studio and rattled the stove into life and made a cup of tea a drop of bluish milk from the neighbour's blue roan cow and a half teaspoon of their precious sugar stirred into it. She stands at the window, sipping her tea and looking out at the green hill, the cup held by its slim handle in her right hand, the saucer in her left, the cup and its saucer are delicate pieces, English bone china, decorated with a crowded pattern of lilac blooms. 
one set of a pair on temporary loan from her mother, Lilac Time. Like everything in this house, and the house itself, temporary and borrowed. And not her mother's best, but her mother's second best, or perhaps even her mother's third best, expensive, nevertheless, a measure of her mother's trust. Until you two can get a few nice things of your own together. She's pleased to see that the horse is still there. The green hill where the horse stands sweeps upward from the foot of the garden to form the soft curve of her near horizon, like the warm belly of the earth, she thinks. She half closes her eyes, permitting this thought a little space. High above the paddock, immature white clouds silently approach from the troubled sea across the cold blue of the sky, which she notices suddenly is exactly the white blue of his eyes. Yes, white blue, like the eyes of his hero, the poet Homer, whose verse he never tires of reciting. She hears it now, her own voice translating for him. I had caught a glimpse of conversion to good and to happiness. She gives a small, nervous laugh at the thought of him, at the thought of where he might have gone this morning, some sense with him always of the terrible disasters that await us in life, his urgency, his mad desire to be boldly, to be bodily engaged with the future. The upward sweep of the green paddock is decorated with yellow oxalis flowers. It is, she supposes, a counterpane sown with morning stars her mother's handwork, for example, finely embroidered silk thread, the Latin names of the flowers done in silver and green around the border, so fine a magnifying glass is needed to see the individual stitches, and even then, there's nothing cruel or cynical in her mother's life. All painful memories have been put down, like old family dogs, quiet, calm, sensible, that is how it is at home and on the farm. Wherever her mother presides, there everything is as it should be, no daisies in the lawn, the past unpicked and restitched. The work goes on. <coughs> They're saving routine, church on Sundays, with Dr. Aiken presiding at Flood Street his thin nose and sad, intelligent eyes, a good man in the claim of his grateful parishioners, his apologetic frown a perpetual reminder that there's something terrible, some terrible problem to be resolved before we can all move confidently to a full enjoyment of our lives. St. Paul wasn't it advised the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice! But Dr. Aiken hasn't rejoiced. He is puzzled in the Lord. What he has missed is something vital, the key to happiness, eluding him. His life has been without a companion. He has not seemed to wish for a woman by him. The manse, a cold red brick darkened by moaning cypresses, the shelves of his study closely inhabited by puzzling tracts to do with something he does yearn for, the ultimate truth, 
the goodness, the Christian God, staples of his divine preoccupations. No touches of the floral, either in teacups or counterpanes, to lighten his days. And such a handsome man. His manner gracious, his hands fine and well-shaped, noticeable when he bows his violin and other features of nature's approval gracing his gentle person, a match. But all for nothing, so it seems, his solitariness puzzled to her mother. For the Presbyterian Assembly does not bar its ministers from the sacrament of marriage. Even so, no. The floral counterpane is surely more exotic than that. Edith sets her cup in its saucer in the dulled stone of the sink. The sink's crazed glaze, the perfect hue of old bones. The fine lines, possibly an antique script. Clink, the cup says sharply to its saucer, and Edith looks down and steadies it, breathing a murmured apology. Once again, she has been dragged back into memory, and her old home, and her mother, her mother. The decorated hill is not a floral counterpane at all, but is something Persian, and is not of her mother's world. A Persian embroidery, the work of silent hours and days, when a woman in her solitude dreams of distant events that never were, but might have been, and bends her head to her needle in the soft lamplight and smiles at the tiny golden flowers she makes, pretending that her dreams are memories. Standing at the window, her fingers are still touching her mother's lilac patterned teacup, the smell of the wood stove in the air, something of hot iron and smokiness, Edith thinks, how peaceful it is here, how lovely. How at home I might so easily know myself to be in this little house with him, if only. The horse is a mare. It's an old brood mare, the points of its hips prominent, gut hung, its spine bowed with the bearing of many folds, its brown coat dry, wintry, equus cabalus. Edith has known the companionship of horses since her childhood on her father's farm. The old brown mare stands side on to the hill, her hollow flank towards Edith. She, the mare, looks as if she is expecting someone to come over the horizon, her ears pointed forward, the imagination of oats in her distended nostrils. Edith wonders where she has come from and what has prompted their frugal neighbour to offer her the generous pasturage of his fine paddock. The horse was there this morning, large and brown, turning its great head towards the house when Edith came out the back door to feed the hens and collect the eggs. A newcomer, like themselves, curious, alert, and a little apprehensive. After feeding the hens, there were no eggs. Edith fetched a thick slice of bread from the house. Gently coaxed, the mare approached the fence and lipped the offering from her hand. The calm innocence of the mare's eye. It is a fact, or known among horse people, that the horse has the largest eyes of any land mammal. Will you be lonely in Mr. Gurner's paddock with only the milker for company? At the touch of her voice, the mare lowered her long lashes and bent her head. The horse is highly sensitive around the areas of its nose, its eyes and its ears. Edith stroked its silky nose, stallions, 
once trembled before your beauty. She returns to the studio. She can't imagine where Pat has gone or what he is doing. Should she paint into her picture some notion of the yellow exalus flowers then? It, it is an oil study of the house and the field sketched initially from the rear where the great broken cypresses are, or are they pines, planted there by the founding Scots a hundred years ago, great black pine trees wherever the Scots have been, like the dooming drone of their pipes and the clenched, averted silence of their religion. She closes her eyes and sees a painting before her, perfectly conceived. She is in despair. Her mother wrenching up handfuls of oxalis from her perennial borders, <coughs> each spring the oxalis returning more luxuriant than the previous year, as if decimation inspires the weed. Does her mother believe a spring will eventually come, when the oxalis will at last be vanquished by her Presbyterian endurance? Edith's grandfather caught oxalis by the gentler name of wood sorrel, and calmly painted fields of it, see? It closes its bells when the sun goes behind a cloud. Another hour has gone and she is hungry. She lifts her hands and sweeps her hair back from her face, gripping her hair in a tight hank behind her head and closing her eyes. She reties the green silk ribbon, securing the bow with a final tug. Her hair has lost its luster since they came down here. The chip heater is rusted and not working properly, so there's no hot water, except what she can heat in a saucepan on the wood stove. Pat has said he will fix the chip heater, but can he fix rust? She is beautiful and young, and she is in love. She knows she should not be unhappy. The light is poor at her end of the room. Pat stomped into the house ahead of her and took the sunny end of the room the first day and he said nothing about it. Like an infantry captain leading his platoon up a hill, he secured the advantage. She's not prepared to fight for it. She can't compete. His vigor is as relentless as the Oxalis. It's not a fair contest. Before she even looked, the house properly. He was lugging the kitchen table into the back room and setting it by the window, where it faced the light of the northern sky. Stay there, he ordered the table, and went out at once to fetch his baggage of paints and brushes. And within minutes, he had started painting on the back of his first square of cardboard, flat on the table, saying nothing, working with a rapid, unhesitating energy, as he always does, as if he is afraid to lose the image, as fugitive as the memory of a dream on waking is it for him afraid that if he pauses <coughs> to reflect, the certainty will escape him. Getting it down onto the cardboard, that's what he does, so that it's out there and is what it is, a thing, a reality. You can't argue with that, it's there. And there's nothing for you to compare it to. You might hate it, but you can't argue with its existence or the claim he makes for it. Art, he says. You might resent it, fear it even, or fear his certainty about it. You might even say it is not art. And then he will laugh with delight to have provoked you to enter the trap. For there is no doubt that its existence and his certainty of its existence deny the worth of everything you do yourself, your care, your skill, the devoted craft of your earnest calling. You may think all this, but you can't ignore the reality of the thing he makes. The thing he has made confronts you. 
it has been produced with the speed and assurance of a child sitting on the floor in a kindergarten. He invites the scorn of the trained artists, but he is not a child, he is a man. She sees the empire of his ambition in his eyes. It is this that attracts her and makes her afraid of him, this seriousness. It is this that is authentic, his determination to find a way. Anyone can have talent, he says, dismissing the talented, not pausing in the swoops and dabs of his big brush. Listening to him, she is made to doubt the worth of everything she does, everything she believes. For her, work is a subtle, delicate, mysterious coming together of the right mood and the right moment. Work is the difficult making of art, striving, that is the word that characterises what she does. She has had to settle into this house before she could begin, to feel herself to be in place, but not him. He was off at once. He had made five of his pictures by midnight the first night on his pieces of cardboard. She went to bed. After he finished painting, he sat in the kitchen, reading and smoking cigarettes and drinking beer and writing poetry in his notebook. He does everything at once. Writing, painting, drinking and smoking. He doesn't know if he's a writer or a painter or a drinker or a smoker. He does what he pleases. She was asleep by the time he came to bed and wanted to make love. She looks at the work he's left on his table. It's a square of cardboard, two feet by two feet. Here's the reverse of a bulk rinso carton he asked the young woman at the corner shop to save for him. The young woman, who is already the mother of three children, looks at him with devotion. She will do anything he asks of her, astonished by the confidence of his eye. Lying in bed beside her husband at night, that girl will think of Pat. Edith knows it. He prepared the cardboard with dark tan kiwi shoe polish, leaning over the table and burnishing it, his elbow going as if he was a devoted char lady polishing a family heirloom for someone. In the centre of the cardboard is an abstract design. There's nothing to delight the eye, just a thick layer of light grey on top of a layer of dark reddish brown, a nameless thing roughly ovoid in form. Between the layers separating them, a thin, wavy line. The only note of uncertainty. In Pat's thing, it would not be called a picture of anything, there was neither a source of illumination nor any hint of story. It was a full stop, a refusal to be looked at with imagination. The onlooker required to be silent and puzzled, to ask, what is this? What is it meant to be? What is it meant by it? And perhaps to feel inadequate for not being able to guess, for having no idea, to be struck dumb, to feel dumb. She has watched Pat enjoying the difficulties that educated people have in finding something to say about his work. Gleeful he is at the effect he has on them, knowing they fear to dismiss him, knowing they fear him. She fears it will stop nothing. She hears a noise outside. It is a man's shout, or a laugh out in the field. She listens, then goes through into the kitchen and looks out the window. On the horizon of the green field, their landlord, Mr. Gurner, is sitting in his wheelchair. He is silhouetted against the white sky, two of his many dogs lashed at his side, as if he is a hunting god in his chariot. 
Pat stands to his right, also in silhouette against the sky, a rifle held to his shoulder. The horse is facing Pat from a few feet away. Everything is still. The mare collapses and rolls onto her side, her hind legs kicking out. Edith hears the crack of the twenty-two, like someone stepping on a twig in the forest. The old man urges himself forward in his chair, his great dogs rearing at their leashes. Pat leans and sets his rifle on the grass and picks up an axe. He steps in close and stands over the horse, swinging the axe high above his head. Pat is a man who knows how to use an axe. The thump of the blade striking through flesh and bone. The old man leaning from his wheelchair, holding the leashes of his eager dogs. They are howling and rearing at their straps. She is out of the house, running up the hill, choking on the thick air that prevents her. She had witnessed her father's manager butchering sheep on the farm and is not new to bloodshed and butchery. But the sight of this destruction here tears at something in her. On the summit of the hill she stands looking at the bloodied grass, the blue and green swath of steaming guts, the reek of it, the two great dogs snarling at her feet as if she has come to take their meat from them. The neighbour is shouting something at her, throwing down a bundle of hessian sacks at her feet, the sudden hot stench of the disembowelled horse in her throat. Now she is the small figure of a young woman clutching her stomach, stumbling down the embroidered hill toward the white cottage, the faintest wisp of blue smoke issuing from its red brick chimney, paint peeling around its window frames, like crusts of scale around the eyes of a half-blind beast. A dark patch of turned earth, the spade abandoned upright in the soil where Pat left it, the hen running along the back fence by the shed, overhung by the darkness of the broken pine trees, the heels of her black court shoes catching in the exilus, her blue skirt flying up. She is a fugitive figure in her own composition. Thank you. Our final reader today is Chika Unigwe, who was born and raised in Enugu, Nigeria, and currently resides in Belgium. She earned a BA from the University of Nigeria, a postgraduate degree from the Katholieke Universiteit Leuven in Belgium, and a PhD from the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. In 2004, she was shortlisted for the Kane Prize. Her other awards include a BBC Short Story Award, a Commonwealth Short Story Prize, and fellowships from UNESCO, the Rockefeller Foundation, Ledig House in New York State, and Haum in Denmark. She has published widely and has contributed essays to The Guardian and The New York Times. Her well-received 2009 novel, On Black Sister Street, was republished in paperback by two in 2011 by Jonathan Cape, which is also publishing her next novel, Night Dancer, this month. On Black Sister Street tells the story of illegal sex workers in Belgium who have made hard choices and face harder consequences. Night Dancer reaches across five decades of Nigerian history to consider a young woman's search for, the, for an answer to the mystery behind her mother's departure from Nigeria. Please welcome Chico Newton. Um, actually, Night Dancer is already out. It's been out a week. Um, I'm going to read from both books. I'm going to read short excerpts from both books. Am I loud enough? Yeah, okay. 
going to start with them on Black Sister Street, if I can find the right page. Before Effie came to Belgium, she imagined castles and clean streets and snow as white as salt. But now when she thinks of it, when she talks of where she lives in Antwerp, she describes it as a botched dream. She talks about it in much the same way as she describes Joyce in her absence, created for elegance, but never quite accomplishing it. In this part of Antwerp, huge offices stand alongside grotty warehouses and desolate food stalls run by effusive Turks and Moroccans. On dark streets carved with tram lines, houses with narrow doors and high windows nestle against each other. The house the women share has an antique brass knocker and a cat flap taped over with brown heavy-duty duct tape. Outside, a neighbor's dog barks. Its owner tells it to be calm. He's almost ready for their walk. The ladies might still be sleeping, he says. Shh. But the ladies are not sleeping. Inside, Efe, Ama, and Joyce are gathered in a room painted in tongues of fire. They are sitting on a long couch, its black covers fading with age, its frame almost giving way underneath their combined weight. The wall against which their couch is placed is slightly cool, and if they lean into the back, their necks press against the coolness. They are mostly silent, a deep quiet entombing them, filling up the room, so that there's hardly space for anything else. The silence is a huge sponge soaking up air, and all three of them have thought at different times this morning that perhaps they should open the door. But they do not because they know that they know it will not help as the door opens into a short carpeted hallway. They think about the air that seems vile and rub their necks and temples. Still no one says a word. They will not talk about it. Their eyes are mainly on their laps, their arms folded across their chests. Sissy is everywhere. She is not here, but they can't escape her, even in their thoughts. Joyce says the room is dusty. She jumps up and grabs a rag from the kitchen, one of the many that she stocks in a cupboard, and starts to dust the walls, the table, the mantelpiece above the fake fireplace with logs that never burn. Effie says, stop, it's not dirty. Joyce continues dusting, frantically her rag performing a crazy dance like one possessed. The same way she does her bed posts in the bingling strat every morning after the men have gone. Amma has a bottle of lettuce on the floor between her legs. She picks it up and starts to drink. The sound of her gulping the beer takes over the silence for a while. Glop, glop, glop until it's finished. She flings the bottle onto the floor. If it eyes it as it rolls, slows down, and finally stops. Isn't it too early to be drinking, Amma? Day, day never even break finish, if it tells her. It's early and so fucking what? Amma burps, tugs at her crucifix. You do always get ants for your ass. Every day, so so annoyance they carry around. Another burp. Just keeps dusting, maniacally. The women are not sure what they are to each other. 
thrown together by a conspiracy of fate and a loud man called Dilly, that are bound in a sort of unobtrusive friendship, comfortable with what little they know of each other, asking no questions or less prompted, sharing deep laughter and music in their sitting room, making light of the life which has taught them to make the most of the trump card that God has wedged in between their legs, dissecting the men who come to them in, in voices loud and deprecating. And now, with the news that they've just received, they've become bound by something so final that they are afraid to talk about it. It is as if by skirting around it, by avoiding it, they could pretend it never happened. Yet, CC is on their minds. On the last day of CC's life, nothing could have prepared her for her transition. The sky was calm, and the weather was just the way she liked it. Not hot enough to be uncomfortable, and not cold enough for a jacket. Such weather made her think of heaven. Once, when she was young, and was discovering words and worlds beyond her own, she asked her mother what heaven was like. Not like here, her mother answered. I'm not cold like I hear it is overseas. Heaven has perfect weather. Sissy walked in the perfect weather, walking Antwerp's many narrow streets. People basked on terraces and conducted conversations in loud voices. She looked at Antwerp with new eyes. Every time she took the bus outside Antwerp, she was aware of how, it, of how easy it was to tell that one had left the city or had re-entered. The landmarks could not be missed. Neglected houses with peeling paint and broken windows. Derelict buildings looking like life had been hard on them. They reminded CC of drug users who had aged before their time. Scars of hard living crisscrossing their faces like mosquito netting. Sometimes, CC thought, stepping over a mound of brown stool, Antwerp seemed like a huge incinerator. I'm just going to read a third. The final excerpt from On Black Sister Streets. The walls of the sitting room were pink. She could not remember if there'd ever been another color or if there'd always been that chewing gum pink she recalled so vividly, the color rising up to meet her whenever she needed a friend, enfolding her in an embrace that was as warm, as comforting as it was familiar. She liked to run her hands along the walls. When she got older and wiser, she would think of it as making love to the walls with her hands filling their silky smoothness, letting her hands glide, a lover's hand, over silky, smooth skin. Those walls were her best friends, silent, constant friends whom she could trust. She was grateful, she was grateful for those walls. Her father did not encourage her friends to visit because he said sometimes friends led one astray. When they did come, he told them Amma had to study. From the window of her room, Amma would watch young girls from the neighborhood shouting out to each other as they played, their feet raising dust as they spread them and stamped them on the ground. She wished she could hurl her father off the balcony, fling him so far that his face would smash into the walls, into the hills. She wished she could hurl her father off the balcony, fling him so far 
that his face would smash into the hills. She told the walls this. She had not always spoken to the walls, but the day after her birthday, when it started, there was nobody else she could tell. And the walls kept quiet and listened and did not push her out. They did not say, not now, go and play, there's a good girl. Okay, then now I'm going to read from Night Dancer. <coughs> Part one. If the yam used in sacrifice does not die prematurely, it would eventually germinate. Enugu 2001. On the third day, she went back to see Madame Gold. The problem is that those with buttocks do not know how to sit, Madame Gold declared firmly. That was your mother's problem. <laughs> Mother, mommy, music, mma, mama nuku. You can't make the M sound with your nostrils pinched. She could not breathe with a mother like hers. Sometimes when she was around, Mama felt like she had cotton wool up her nose. M, memories. Beneath all the other memories, the clearest childhood memory Mama had of her mother was of a not so tall, not so short woman in a multicolored boo-boo, clapping and dancing to music Mama could no longer recall. On her feet, she had shoes of such glossy red that it seemed as if they sent out sparks every time she tapped them. The booboo billowed around her waist like a parachute, and Emma remembered imagining the booboo opening up and sending her mother spiraling upwards into heaven, sparks of fire trailing from her feet. Her mother's face was dominated by a wide, wide smile, as if that was all her face was, a smile that swallowed everything else. She wanted to dance. Dancing helped her forget. She rifled through some cassettes and settled on Madonna. Something quick, something danceable, something light, something to lift the somberness from her life. She raised the volume and began to twirl and twirl and twirl, trying not to think, not of her mother, not of the dream, and not of the story she was uncovering in the shoebox. Her head was bursting and she had to clear it, twirling into forgetfulness twirling into a place where the only thing that mattered was Madonna and her happy carefree voice singing, holiday, celebrate. The vowels extended to encompass happiness. She danced and danced until she fell exhausted into the chair. She had dreamt of her mother. Her mother had come to her, one half of her face card, as, she, as if she'd suffered from chicken pox. On her feet were her red shoes, her dancing shoes. Her hands were floppy, as if the bones had been filleted out, and a dusty white, as if they were covered in talcum powder. Mama did not want to think of that. She did not need those thoughts. She did not need these thoughts crowding her head again. Once she let one come along, another stalling, and another, and another, and another, until her head felt like it was going to burst and scatter her brains. She put a thumb to the nape of her neck and rubbed. She got up, turned the tape over, and started to dance again. This time, though, her movements were slower, as if she had ached. Her bones ached. Her eyes hurt, 
and the entire house was suffused with that foul, suffocating smell. She willed her feet to move faster and faster and faster. She turned up the music until the walls shook, and the music entered her body, snaked into her nostrils and covered her tongue so that there was nothing else but this loud booming sound and Madonna's voice screaming. She opened her mouth wide, breathing out the words, and sang along, and shut her eyes, and no longer remembered the beginning of the upside-down thoughts or the end of it. Because, because, because it never happened, she danced and danced and danced until her bones turned to liquid. And there was just one more except to end this. Please bear with me. L, L is for love. It's lifting the tongue and placing it gently against the roof of your mouth. L is gentle, like softly saying, la, la, la. It is fluffy like love. Love is patient and kind. She imagined love as a beautiful butterfly flitting around your room, sure of itself. Love was not at all like her mother. That her mother could have loved was a revelation to her. When on the third day of reading the letters, she read about her mother falling for a man. She clapped her hands and said into the room, now wah, my own mother in love? Growing up, she always thought of her mother as immune to love, even to that of her daughter. She did not walk around the house singing la la la. She sang songs that were heavy on the tongue, and she sang them in a deep gravelly voice as if she were a heavy smoker. She opened her mouth wide, and she dredged them out like she would a dry cough. Love was not something Ma would ever have associated with her. F is for father. To say F properly, the lower lip has to come between the upper teeth and the lower teeth. Not imprisoned, but lightly trapped and then instantly released as if it were being teased by a lover. F was her father. Should she call him father or papa or daddy or dad? Madame Gold had said the right word would come to her. There was no need to get herself worked up, worrying which was best. When she'd asked Obi over the phone, he told her that she was just being silly, worrying over such a little thing. Are there big things that she'd worry about then, she'd asked. Should she worry about whether he would accept her, love her, want her? A parent's love is a given, Obi had said. No need to worry about that either. F is for father. A father who loved you just because, even if you've been absent from his life since you were a baby. Last night, she had the dream of her mother again. This time, she looked less filleted, as if she'd been stuffed up where the flesh was previously scooped out. But the whiff, but the whiff remained, clinging to her fiercely like a devoted dog. Mama could still smell it when she woke. The weight of it was too much, too huge to confront. The hand she raised to ring the doorbell was heavy and shaky, as if she carried dumbbells way beyond her strength. She brought a thumb to the button and pressed harder than she'd meant to. She could hear the bell ringing. It was loud and angry. It jarred. The door swung in to reveal a thick-waisted woman in a too-long skirt and a too-white lace blouse with silver sequins. This was Rappel, the other woman in her father's life. Thank you.
that concludes the second installment of uh, Afternoon Reads. We'll be back on Friday for the third and final. And in between, we have events, uh, more great events. One tonight at the Millennium Library, where Teju Cole and Bert Nagunsworthy will be reading as well as Arturo Dorado, our City of Refuge writer in residence. And tomorrow night, we have at the Playhouse, Michael Landate in conversation with Kamal if I may, I'd just like to make a special announcement uh, for all world participants on behalf of uh, CJ Johnson Driver, uh, who would like um, everyone to look inside their tote bags and see if there are any belongings that say CJ Driver on them. Yes, I'll return it to him. <laughs> Thank you very much. Have a good afternoon. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Writers Centre Norwich. You can find out more about the organisation at writerscentrenorwich.org.uk and more podcasts like this one can be found on SoundCloud or iTunes.